Namo tassa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Nibbānaṁ paramaṁ sukhanti Nibbānaṁ paramaṁ sukhaṁ is Nibbāna is the ultimate ease, happiness, peace. And that should always be our aim if we come to stay in a monastery, especially a good monastery like this, to settle for nothing less than full release. And all of the facilities here are aimed to uh, assist as best they can. However, facilities uh, can't actually help the individual to make up their mind to practice according to the uh, teachings of the Buddha. Uh, That has to come within each one of you. And uh, part of uh, my job here is to try and uh, inspire, try and uh, elucidate, and try and uh, turn our minds into, uh, first of all, a respect of the Dhamma, then a love of the Dhamma, then a a realization of the Dhamma. And sometimes uh, the defilements in our mind can obsess us, and we can be more concerned with our defilements than we are with the Dhamma. That's when the mind just follows uh, its moods and gets lost in them and doesn't remember something which is far deeper, far more powerful, far more wonderful than these these gross uh, defilements, the desire, anger, delusion, the fault-finding mind, the angry mind, the niggling mind, the mind which can't sort of forgive and drop the past. One of the reasons that uh, people uh, don't maintain and progress, uh, so don't maintain their achievements and don't progress further on the path, uh, is by not fully understanding uh, the uh, preliminaries, the foundations of the practice. And sometimes we can aim very high, uh, but without the foundations we, we lose a lot of time and we waste so much of our energy. And uh, the way the Buddha taught and uh, the way he uh, explained the path again and again was a gradual path. It's a very beautiful teaching, this gradual path of the Buddha. And uh, in the suttas it usually comes up with with faith and confidence in the Buddha. And the person uh, hears about uh, the Buddha uh, sees one arise in the world, listens to their teaching, and therefore gains the faith, the confidence, the inspiration in those teachings. And that's such an obvious uh, first foundation in this path. And the more that confidence in the Buddha's teachings and the Buddha's attainment uh, is manifest, the stronger that very first foundation, 
then the more possible it will be to, to travel onwards. If that foundation is shaky, then one proceeds along this gradual path, you will find that it's very, very difficult. The more confidence and faith one has in the Dhamma and in the Buddha's enlightenment, then the faster these uh, further stages uh, will be developed. And uh, I'm rushing through these because the main subject of the talk will be the place of mindfulness, sati, in this gradual training. But the second factor in this gradual training, after the confidence, the faith, what we call in Pali, sadha, is established, is the, the sila, the virtuous conduct of that person who's going to practice the Dhamma. Uh, with faith, at least, one would expect that through faith, through confidence, that one would follow the advice of the Buddha. If one has confidence in any teacher, one should follow the advice, at least to follow it to see whether it's true or not. Uh, that confidence may not be full confidence, but at least one should have that uh, trust just to walk and go and see if that teacher is pointing at something which is valuable or not. And of course all teachers, no matter uh, from what tradition uh, of Theravada Buddhism, I have to qualify that, uh, always stress virtue as an indispensable foundation on this gradual path towards Nibbāna. And at the very least, that virtuous conduct has to be five precepts. Uh, if one wishes to, to gain things like Magga and Pala, especially the second and higher attainments on the path, then it's very obvious that the basic requirement would have to be at least eight precepts. And because uh, to get these higher attainments of insight, and I would even say that uh, unless you're extremely fortunate to gain even the first attainment, that one should at least be uh, practicing at that time the eight precepts, because the extra precepts which uh, make the eight precepts is the precepts of renunciation. You're renouncing, you're letting go, you're deliberately saying no to this sensory world of the five senses, to the pleasures therein, and by doing so, you're opening the possibility for the absence of the five hindrances and the arising of wisdom. Remember, the first of the hindrances is either abhijja or karmachanda. It's that, that interest and delight in that world of the five senses, which is karmachanda. So you have to get rid of that uh, in order to, or at least allay it temporarily, in order to get rid of the five hindrances so that uh, the deep insights can arise. So the foundation for um, the really uh, full practice uh, should be the eight precepts. It's why in the time of the Buddha, those who were true disciples of the Buddha, the lay disciples even, would wear white and keep eight precepts at least on the four times a month. And those who were even more uh, 
faithful and inspired by the Buddha's teaching, even as lay people they would wear white and keep eight precepts all the time. Some lay people would do that. But at least here in the monastery one doesn't need to linger there because everyone at the very minimum is keeping eight precepts, and sometimes even more. But remember, the purpose of those extra precepts is to restrain the grosser forms of sensuality. And that brings us on to the, the third part of the gradual training, which is the further restraint of the senses, the sense restraint, the Indriya Sangwara. And this is where the practice really starts to bite. You should have no trouble in this monastery uh, having some faith in the, the teachings of the Buddha. You should have no faith, no trouble really keeping these precepts. But now we come to something which is quite difficult to do, which is the, the sense restraint. And when people in the West start to talk about mindfulness, uh, as I listen to their teachings, that this is the first area where they're referring to. Uh, this word mindfulness or sati has got such a wide usage uh, in Buddhism in the West. But this is where uh, the way the word is used by people in the West, this is not the way the word is used by the Buddha. This is where it first starts to arise. Because the sense restraint is the first means of calming the mind down. And what sense restraint means, the way the Buddha described it, is through any of the six senses, including the mind, that you don't grasp onto the, uh, the details uh, of that sensory perception. You don't follow it to make much of it. If it's something which is unpleasant, say an unpleasant sound, something you don't like, some unpleasant sight, some unpleasant uh, smell, taste or touch or even some unpleasant mental state, you don't make too much of it. You have enough mindfulness, if you like, to guard the doors of the senses. And indeed, uh, when I said this is where lay people start to use the word mindfulness, I should really correct myself there because the Buddha used mindfulness, sati, in this context also. When he described that sati like a, a gatekeeper, like a doorkeeper, who guards the six doors of the mind, sorry, the six doors of the senses, uh, guards all of the six senses, whether it's sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, or the mental cognition. And by guarding those senses, it means you are careful that whatever input comes into any of these six senses, it doesn't disturb the mind, it doesn't give rise to unskillful states of mind, the akusala dhammas. And this is a prerequisite of the practice. It comes just after the sila, keeping the precepts, keeping the, the rules of the monastery. And it's a gradual training. You should be practicing this and making sure that your sense restraint is strong 
before that you think you can go on to the higher aspects of the path. Sometimes that this is, uh, you can see the way that Ajahn Chah used to teach in Thailand. You know, he'd make a lot of like the, the vinya, the rules and the precepts. And he'd also make a lot out of not following your moods and not sort of grasping and attaching at this level onto some of these objects of the senses. Because what that does, that frees you from so much uh, coarse uh, greed and hatred. It frees you from so much of the sensory desire and this niggling irritation of uh, fault finding. Yeah. And this is where a lot of mindfulness should be put. If you find you are not peaceful with your surroundings, you're not peaceful with your fellows in this holy life, you can ask yourself, is it because I haven't followed enough sense restraint? Remember that sense restraint also refers to the mind. Are there objects which are coming up into the mind which you're believing, which you're taking to be more than they truly are? To help with that sense restraint, you know, one can remember the Dhamma. When uh, we talk about the doorkeeper, Sati, as uh, the way the Buddha um, mentioned Sati in this context, Sati the doorkeeper, he was mentioning that the doorkeeper should also have some wisdom to know exactly uh, who should come in and who should not come in. And when we talk about sati, it has to be with some wisdom, a faculty of knowing, a faculty of even remembering some of the Dharma one has realized and some of the Dharma one has read, some of the Dharma one has taught. But sati also has this connotation of remembering, remembering what the Dhamma is according to your knowledge, both through experience, through past insights and also through instruction. And once a doorkeeper just knows what especially is wholesome, what is unwholesome, what leads to a greater clarity, greater peace, greater freedom and what leads in the opposite direction. Then the job of that sati with the sampajanya, the wisdom faculty together with knowing sort of what's occurring in your mind, you tend just to avoid those things which disturb you and you cultivate those wholesome qualities of the mind which give rise to deeper clarity, deeper peace, which give rise to more wisdom arising. And one cannot stress enough the importance of sense restraint here, as the Buddha taught it. And this is a, a foundation, a fundamental of the practice. And that sense restraint should go with one's food, so one doesn't get off on the delicious food which one takes. You should get a, that sense of restraint should be practiced with uh, any like beautiful women coming into the monastery or beautiful men coming into the monastery or whatever. Because you find, especially as you do more meditation, the mind becomes very sensitive. And uh, for especially for young monks, 
Anagarikas first coming into the monastery, sometimes it's amazing just how food and drink become so important, whereas in the outside world they're just nothing. The reason is, is because the mind is becoming a bit more sensitive, its other fields of enjoyment have been cut off and food and drink is perhaps the only thing you have left to, uh, for the sensory desires to get stuck into. And this is where we have to be careful, we have to practice sense restraint. And again, that sense restraint is assisted by your wisdom faculty. To know that these, the food which you eat, the sights which you see, even the thoughts which you think are just they're temporary, impermanent, they're unsatisfactory, they're not yours. So don't make much of them. If anyone says anything which upsets you, it's just sound, it's just unpleasant. What do you expect? It'll disappear by itself. Make sure that, that doesn't resonate in your mind as well by going back and thinking about these things. If that something occurs during the day which you find unpleasant or even very pleasant, you go back and think about it and think about it, you're not practicing sense restraint. You grasped onto an object, you've got caught, you've taken the bait, like the fisherman dangling the worm in the stream and the fish comes along and bites it and gets caught. Don't get caught in these external things and practice that sense restraint. This is the first part of where, where mindfulness really starts to come in. The mindfulness and the wisdom. And this is also the, one of the first parts where you can really start to use some investigation to assist this mindfulness and clear comprehension. Use the three characteristics which the Buddha taught because that really helps sort of be able to relinquish his uh, attachments to the objects of the senses. But this is still a very coarse form of sati, of mindfulness. One of the purposes of this talk is to show that sati has a wide range of uh, applications, of, of, of meanings. Not actually its meaning, but more like its fullness. I know that uh, Venerable Yanaponika defined sati as like bare awareness or bare attention. And uh, I like that uh, term, but it needs to be ex expound, ex expanded. You know, the bare awareness or the bare attention, that's all it is, attention, awareness. But that attention, that awareness, that mindfulness, you know, it can be weak and it can be strong and it can be immense can be almost like immeasurable. And at this point, you know, the, the mindfulness is, you know what's going on, but it's still very weak, it's by no means full awareness of what's going on. There's many parts of those sensory activities which you're just not catching. But this is a mindfulness of the sense, of the senses, the six senses. It's actually just after the meditator, according to this gradual teaching, after the, the meditator has uh, well trained himself in sense restraint, then actually the next stage in the gradual path is actually satyan sampajanya, of mindfulness and clear comprehension. 
And this is where the meditator, having restrained the senses, become more aware, according to the way the Buddha taught it, just aware of coming and going, of, of uh, being in the four postures, of moving, and no speaking or being silent. Having restrained the five senses, in other words, resisting being caught up in the fascination of the sensory world uh, of uh, body and mind at this stage, one has more freedom to actually practice this awareness and understanding of one's bodily movements, of what one is doing. But again, this is still a, a weak awareness compared to what's going to come later. But it's part of the practice. You can see that if the mind, if you don't haven't got sense restraint, the mind gets caught up in the objects of senses. It gets uh, deceived, overwhelmed by these senses, and you just don't really know what you're doing. You don't really know what you're thinking and what harm it can bring to you. You get waste many, many hours just thinking stupid ideas and thoughts which don't help you and they don't help the monastery and they don't help the other people in the monastery you're just wasting your own time but if you have sense restraint then you have the, the time, the freedom the mind is open enough to practice a deeper form of mindfulness and clear comprehension just on, on the bodily movements the bodily positions of like speaking or remaining silent, or sleeping or whatever. It's interesting that uh, at this point the Buddha in the different forms of the gradual practice sometimes says that at this point one practices further contentment, sometimes he says one practices further here the uh, knowing restraint in eating and wakefulness but uh, here, the wakefulness, restraint in eating, or the contentment in the use of the requisites, this is all like the preparation in, in calming, peaceful. And you can see that all of this is tranquilizing the mind. You one can say that all of this is a practice of samatha, because samatha means tranquilizing peaceful, settling difficulties, overcoming obstacles so they disappear. You samatha them. But it's also requiring a lot of insight as you go along. And as you know that uh, the standard of Ajahn Chah, and it's a standard which I like to keep, is that samatha vipassana can't be split up. They go together. But I like to view this gradual practice in the terms of samatha because you can see as you uh, practice virtue, you're quietening your lifestyle. You know, as you practice sense restraint, you're quietening your mind. As you practice mindfulness and clear comprehension, you're quietening. As you practice contentment, uh, wakefulness, no moderation in eating, you're quietening everything down. And once you can quiet these grosser distractions or disturbances in the mind through these methods, so this point, and at this point the Buddha says that one finds the, the 
the secluded places, one goes into the forest or the mountains and finds a, a root of a tree or a cave or a mountain slope or somewhere like that, a place of seclusion to start one's meditation. And it's as if that the meditation, the, the true meditation hasn't even started yet. These are the preliminaries. And I'd like to stress that first of all because you know, sometimes if our meditation of anapanasati, of mindfulness on the breath, uh, is, is difficult, perhaps it's because we haven't looked at these foundations first of all. Uh, I'm quite confident every one of you here has virtue, but sense restraint, you know, the practice of mindfulness and clear comprehension, the contentment with regard to the requisites, what one uses, the wakefulness, are you sleeping too much? and the knowing moderation in, in eating and also drinking. So look at those areas and see if you are cultivating those as best you can. Maybe that's the cause of the meditation, it hasn't really bitten yet. But at this point the Buddha says the meditator goes to the root of a tree or some open space for seclusion. At this point that one uh, should uh, move away from distractions because this is a more refined practice one has to start now. And at this point that the Buddha said one should practice the overcoming of the five hindrances. Uh, one could wonder if one has done all this sense restraint and all this mindfulness and clear comprehension and all this um, contentment, wakefulness and restraint in eating. Are there still five hindrances there? And the answer is yes, because these five hindrances are extremely subtle. And again, like many of these things, if a hindrance is always there, you don't know it's there. Very often you only know hindrances when they've fully disappeared. When they've fully disappeared you realize there's a state of mind without hindrances, and from that perspective that you know, ah, this is what the hindrance really was. The hindrances again have their coarser forms and their refined forms. And until they're fully gone, you cannot fully understand them. It's, it's the old, old simile, if you've been born in the waters of fish, you don't know what water is. You have to get out to know what water is. If you've been in jail all your life, you were born in jail, you don't know what jail is until you leave. And if you've lived in the world all the time until you've left, you don't know what the world is. You do need that perspective of, of getting out to know where you were. And this is you know, the same with the hindrances until you've completely remove these hindrances, you don't know really what they are. You may know their names and descriptions from the suttas and what the Buddha taught and what monks say about them and you may have heard all of this and learnt all of this but until they're fully gone you just don't know what they are. You can get rid of their coarser forms but the more refined forms are far more difficult. And so it's at this point in the gradual training the Buddha says, overcome these five hindrances which are defilements, upikalesa of the mind. 
which are weakness of wisdom. And they're weakness of wisdom because not only do they make one see things in the old ways, they are actually born of conditioning and they reinforce conditioning. They don't give the mind the freedom to see things in a new way, in a way they truly are, but just as the way you've always seen them in the past, as the way you want them to be, not the way they truly are. Desire and aversion lead to, in this way, delusion because they uh, bend perception, they bend thought, they bend views to make you see things just as you expect them to be, just as you want them to be, so you're not challenged, so you're not threatened, so you're very comfortable and secure in your old ways. The hindrances have to be overcome at this point, and they have to become, have to be overcome completely before one can go any further. And obviously, if one still has hindrances in the mind, the mindfulness cannot be full, it cannot be perfect. These are defilements of the mind. They are weakness of wisdom. They are, as it were, like dust and grit and grease on the windows, so you cannot see clearly through to the other side, to what's on the other side there. These are the uh, the main uh, substance of you know, the curtain which divides you from reality. And they need to be eradicated to be able to see clearly. And all teachers, all uh, meditation uh, teachers, masters of the Theravada tradition, they all agree that the hindrances have to be fully removed. The trouble is, and this is an important point, how do you know when the hindrances have been fully removed or not? Because sometimes people practice mindfulness with the hindrances, as it were, laughing, sniggering behind their back, because the hindrances are still there, they're still in control and power, and the person hasn't really got the ability to see clearly yet. In the gradual training, when the Buddha said, that you should overcome the hindrances. The next thing which he said was to develop the jhanas. One, two, three, four. One of the reasons why one should develop the jhanas at this point is that one knows through the attainment of these jhanas that the hindrances have been overcome. That once one attains the jhana, Afterwards, one knows hindrances have gone. In fact, in some places in the suttas, the Buddha says that the joy of the jhanas is uh, based on the, the realization that an irritation has been overcome. And the, the joy of the, the first jhana is sometimes described as the, the knowledge of the five hindrances have been removed, overcome, gone. This is that happiness and joy. Once the hindrances have over, been overcome, it does bring a joy to the mind. And I'm borrowing one of Ajahn Chah's similes here. He said it's just like a person's had a rope around their neck, born with a rope around the neck, with two people pulling at it. And you can call those two people that Karma Chanda and the other one Dhammanasa, with all the other four hindrances, if you like, uh, likes and dislikes. Pulling the, mind, pulling the throat 
constricting it. Then he said, well, of course, I mean, once that rope has been loosened, once those two people pulling all the time, you know, the five hindrances have been abolished, then the rope becomes loose. And of course one will feel bliss. One, have been out, one is free for the first time for many people since they were born. The mind is liberated. It's the first of the Vimutis, the first jhana. And that's what, you know, this, this word, uh, sorry, the first of Vimokas. This is what the word like Vimoka means, like liberation, you're free. The mind experiences sort of freedom and liberation. And freedom and liberation is, is blissful. One knows afterwards, ah, oh, the hindrances have been removed. This is a state of mind without hindrances. And when one knows the state of mind without hindrances, only then can one know the state of mind with hindrances. And uh, this is an insight, and a very important insight, a very important knowledge which has to come up in order to be able to uh, know what hindrances are and know how to abolish those hindrances from the mind. It's one of the important reasons why the Buddha praised jhanas and encouraged jhanas. And not only that, that within the jhana that one can experience uh, an increase in this quality of mindfulness. Remember the hindrances are the weakeners of wisdom, the defilers of the mind. Once these weakeners of wisdom, defilers of the mind, these stains have been removed, one does, as, it's, as it were, see very clearly with the eye of the mind. It's true that one only sees one thing in a jhana, but that seeing is far more powerful than one ever experienced before. These are heightened states of consciousness, not lessened states of consciousness. The way the Buddha described it, he said that these states are the mind gone to greatness, the Mahagata Chitta, the mind gone great, not gone small, not disappeared, the mind gone to greatness. So in these states one experiences a mindfulness which is far more powerful than one ever experienced before within the jhana. And as such, that one starts to understand this thing which we call mindfulness through reflection on these states afterwards, one begins to understand that mindfulness has so many different strengths. From having experienced a jhana, one knows mindfulness within a jhana, one knows mindfulness just after a jhana, one knows mindfulness you know, when one hasn't meditated for a couple of days very successfully. You know the mindfulness when you first get up in the morning. And you notice that there, you can say that one is mindful, but the strength is much different. The power of that mindfulness changes. And the Buddha said that as one cultivates these jhanas, so at the same time as one cultivating mindfulness, because there's you all know the pinnacle of mindfulness, the purity of it, occurs in the fourth jhana. 
mindfulness purified by equanimity or the pure mindfulness with equanimity it's one of these compounds it's very hard to split the compound up and decide exactly what it means but this is certainly the a pinnacle of mindfulness in this state and you can ask yourself why is it a pinnacle of mindfulness and it's because that all the distractions have been removed at this point not only the five hindrances but the distraction of of piti sukha and of vitaka vichara the mind isn't moving the mind isn't obsessed even with his beautiful mental um, blisses and when it isn't obsessed or when it isn't sort of concerned with these things it's just this pure equanimous immovable mindfulness just on the one object in this state but that is a powerful mindfulness and of course that faculty of mindfulness when you emerge from that jhana and it doesn't sort of shatter that power of mindfulness from a fourth jhana even from a first jhana experience is remains enormously strong it remains enormously strong simply because the hindrances remain dormant they've been knocked out and any person who's ever experienced these jhanas know the deeper the jhana, the fuller it is then the longer those hindrances remain dormant when one emerges the mind is clear for days sometimes without even a thought of sensory desire I mean not even a thought, not even one thought one knows this because the mindfulness is just so clear and sharp and the mind is just so movable and workable you can do all sorts of nice things with this sort of mind you can have a lot of fun with it and once you've got a mind with power it is great joy and fun any of the, the great meditators they don't go around with a, uh, a grim face they go around blissed out and you can usually for any teacher that's how you can see how your disciples are doing just look upon the smile on their faces see what they're doing and once one has emerged from one of these jhana states once the mindfulness is that strong that's a mindfulness which can be used for the path of gaining the magga and pala the great insights and in the gradual training, this is how the Buddha taught that once you emerge from the jhanas that's where you start doing insight in other words, you start contemplating things like the five khandhas or the six sense bases in terms of the three characteristics anicca, dukkha, anatta or, as is more, even more common you start reflecting on past lives, on kamma and then the Four Noble Truths past lives and karma sometimes that reflection is not talked about very often as if, well, you know, not all monks need to do this you just go straight to the asawas the destruction of the defilements but you know, sometimes you wonder, well, why did the Buddha do this and why did the Buddha talk about this because sometimes we do need to actually to see this problem in the context not just of now, not just in the context of this life but in the context of samsara 
this whole wheel of becoming, of being born and dying and being born again in some other realm, of the consciousness finding its stations and growing there and giving rise to rebirth in these different places, the whole process of existence and how just the continu- not the continuity but the process just continues on and on and on and on and that understanding is an important part of the understanding which give, of the Four Noble Truths to see the sort of the depth of dukkha just to see how far it spreads through eons and you've been experiencing that or rather your process has been experiencing this or rather the process is this experience with a mind which is free from the hindrances which is malleable, which is workable you should be able to do that so sometimes you can test yourself how far can you remember remember the sati, mindfulness someone who's got great sati can remember things a long time ago and someone with the sati which is uh, the result of a jhana, especially a fourth jhana, should be able to remember past lives and kamma and put this whole thing in perspective and burst the truth of the Four Noble Truths that sort of mindfulness when the Buddha talked about the Satipatthana, the four, you know, they call it foundations of mindfulness. You know, sometimes that, you know, I prefer to call it the four focuses of mindfulness to make it a bit more um, meaningful to myself. I don't know if that's an acceptable translation according to the Pali, but certainly uh, that's the way I've always looked upon the, the Satipatthana because it makes it more useful to me and I think it's closer to the Buddha's meaning because the Satipatthana is, is not so much describing what mindfulness is but where to focus it, how to use it once you've got it and uh, that's the main purpose of the Satipatthana as I understand it how to use Sati once you've really developed it to the strength and as you know, you all know who have been with me for for more than a little while that uh, I always uh, point in the Satipatthana Sutta to the prerequisites before one does Satipatthana of Vinaya Lokaya Bija Dhammanasang it's a prerequisite because that phrase in Pali means having in other words already in the past uh, eliminated Vinaya eliminated the Abhija and Dhammanasa which is uh, in the commentaries to this to both Satipatthana Suttas is said very clearly without any doubt to me having overcome the five hindrances and there's great evidence from that from the Suttas as well I was pointing to Arthur Sutta in the Anguttara to Venukantipala the other night where it says verbatim that you should abandon the five hindrances and then do Satipatthana it also said you should abandon the uh, bad seed, you should keep the five precepts before doing Satipatthana, you should uh, abandon the five hindrances before doing Satipatthana and you should abandon the five strands of sense pleasure 
before doing Satipatthana. He makes sort of uh, that statement there by the Buddha in the Anguttara Nikaya, the 9, 63, 64, 65, those three suttas, is very important because you know, it just, uh, again, confirms the commentaries statement in both Satipatthana suttas that the five hindrances have to be overcome first of all because the type of mindfulness the strength of it which is going to give rise to those insights which will give you this Sotapanna, Sakandagami, Anagami and Arahat it's not an ordinary mindfulness it's not the sort of mindfulness which which people just can rouse up with ease one of the reasons why not many people become enlightened, why not many people gain these stages, because they just rush right to the Satipatthana without making a thorough foundation first of all. Mindfulness has all these different strengths. The preliminary ones are great, they're very important. A lot of people don't need to stay at uh, sense restraint with their mindfulness. And never strengthen it further than that. And so they may get sort of little insights which get them by, which give them some sort of peace in this world, but not the great liberating pieces, not the great uh, shattering insights of Magha and Pala. And for those of, well, those of you who know the forest tradition in Northeast Thailand, and even those of you who don't know this, I mean, you can ask any of those monks who do know it, know just the importance of, of taking mindfulness to the strength given by jhanas. And the teachers say, uh, teach these things. And that sort of mindfulness is what you use for the Satipatthana. And once you have that degree of mindfulness, the mindfulness of someone, Satipatthana, Atapi, you've got that energy of Atapi, Vinya Lokya Bija Domanasang, having abandoned the five hindrances and really sort of knocked them out. Then you put your mindfulness on any of these four categories. You know, the body, kaya, weighed enough, the the way the mind uh, looks upon pleasure, pain or equanimity, or the um, jitta, the consciousness, or the, the Dhamma, which is usually explained as the other two Khandas, the Sanya and Sankara Khanda. And uh, where Sanya falls is not that uh, clear, but certainly the Dhamma, the last of the four, foundation, four foundations of mindfulness, or four focuses of mindfulness, is certainly the Sankara. And maybe a bit more. But here is where we use that mindfulness to focus on the five khandhas. And uh, those of you who have again heard me talk about Satipatthana, the most important part of this is is like the purpose of this Satipatthana. And the the purpose of the Satipatthana is not so much uh, put in the beginning where it says for the purification of beings, but further down Unfortunately, that sometimes when we read these translations, is uh, the abbreviation sometimes misses out the most important points. And sometimes, if one can read the whole suit without any abbreviation, sometimes the repetition of certain phrases at the end of every 
practice of Satipatthana starts to bring home a very important point. And you can see that at the end of every section it says that that he does this, for example, on the the uh, Satipatthana on the body, the Kayanusati. He does this just to know that this is just body. And the, the commentaries uh, explain it in even more detail. So you do not see that this is a person, a self, a me or a mind. And that's the purpose of, of doing the mindfulness on any of the five khandhas, in order to see anatta, non-self. This is just body. These are just vedana, feelings, nothing more than that. This is just sanya, perceptions. You, know, you perceive this, but don't think it's truth. Just a perception, that's all. And you can perceive that this is a brilliant talk or this is a stupid talk. Don't believe either one of those, it's just a talk. And that person who said something to you, they shouldn't have said, that's just perception. Don't take it any more than that. Here it goes again. You can't trust perception. It's just perception, that's all. It's not yours, it's not doesn't belong to you, you can't control it, leave it alone, it's not your business. You haven't got any business. Now once you can start to see these things, whether it's sanya, whether it's sankara, whether it's consciousness itself, the jitanusati, if you can actually see there's the mind, the consciousness, and see, it's just consciousness, it's not you, it's not yours, there's not a self or a soul lingering in here. You can understand the purpose of this Satipatthana. You've got this strong Sati, this mindfulness, you apply it on these five khandhas, for the purpose of seeing they're just empty of a self or a soul. You can use impermanence, you can use dukkha, but the main purpose here is to see that there's selfless nature because the first goal of insight practice is to gain stream entry. Sotapanna, the abandoning of Sakaya Ditti, the view that there's a self in here. And that view is not easy to eradicate. It needs that degree of sati, that power of mind, put on any of these uh, five khandhas. If you see one, you get the idea and you quickly apply them to all of the five khandhas. You see where you've been stuck for so many eons. So what the Buddha said, How was it house builder? At last I've seen you. This is a tricky fellow, this house builder. He doesn't sort of let you see him very easily. It's delusion of self. Once you see him, then Sakaya Ditti has been overcome. To that degree of mindfulness, that powerful mindfulness on the five candles, or you can do it on the six senses, the, the uh, view of the self is overcome. Whenever you see Anicca to its depth, you have to see Anatta to its depth. Whenever you see Dukkha to its depth, you have to see Anatta to its depths. It's all pointing to the same thing, the same Dhamma. 
But anatta is perhaps the most beautiful expression of it. And that's the important realization for the stream enterer. And then, from the stream enterer, their job, that which we call seka, the trainee, their job is to cultivate that attainment through the four foundations of mindfulness. And that is the job of the trainee. To cultivate so they don't just see it once, that they train themselves to live just seeing this is just body, this is just Vedana, this is just Sanya, this is just Sankara, this is just Vijnana. They train themselves to do that. They can always test themselves if they have really done that because once you see the selfless nature of these things, you don't attach to them. When you don't attach to them, you can let them go. When you can let them go, you can get into jhana with ease. Karma sanya, the perception of sensual, of the external five senses, when you can let go of that one, then you can get into the first jhana. This is what the prerequisite of the first jhana is. The karma sanya and the five hindrances are all sort of tied up together. The karma sanya, the perception of the, the world of the five senses. And that world of the five senses, once the perception plays around in there, you'll always seek for uh, fulfillment, seek for satisfaction. And you should know that no satisfaction can be found in there at all. Don't even be interested in it. Just chuck it away. If you can chuck it away, it means a jhana. So a jhana can be a test of one's insights, especially a, a test of how much one has let go of the world of the five senses, how much one has let go of a particular coarse manifestation of the five candidates. However, if one continues this uh, practice of, especially as a seka, as a sotapanna, uh, sakadagami, anagami, continues this until it becomes a full, a full mindfulness in every moment that this is just body, this is just vedana, this is just sanya, sankara, vinyana, nothing more, there's no self in there, it's impermanent, unsatisfactory, non-self, that full awareness of the Dhamma in every moment means there can be no misperception or misconception. And through that ability to train the mind and to see these truths so deeply that you can never forget them, not even in a moment, then that's the attainment of full release, the arahat, the accomplished one. And that's where the mindfulness becomes constant the mindfulness of the Dhamma. So the doorkeeper always knows what's going on. Sati is not coming from a person. It's just a quality of the mind. It's just part of the process, a natural phenomena, and should not be taken as your being mindful, or mindfulness is a manifestation of your essential self. So in the gradual training, this is how mindfulness has its different places. But uh, the main purpose of this talk is to show that mindfulness has these different degrees. And this is not just theory, because as you practice, and especially as you gain samadhi, you will know 
the different qualities of mindfulness. And that should give you confidence that uh, the sort of mindfulness you need to gain these amazing states of liberation, either of jhanas or of uh, magapala, is the top mindfulness. So don't be satisfied with anything less. So that's my talk this evening on mindfulness. Now, are there any comments or questions anyone would like to offer uh, on the talk on mindfulness this evening? Especially if there's a point which I haven't made clear. I'm giving a talk for one hour. Sometimes you do uh, say something which you put in the wrong way around or which uh, you weren't articulate enough. So even for the sake of others, if there's a point you wish to bring up, please bring it up. about Jagarya and Matanyuta? The moderation in eating or... There's those three things which arise at uh, around the same time is uh, Jagarya, which is uh, wakefulness and Bhojana Matanyuta, the knowing moderation in uh, one's food and also Santuti, which is the contentment in the use of the requisites. Is that what you were referring to? The wakefulness. Again, the wakefulness here means, uh, as specifically as I understand the Buddha teaching it, is not to spend so much time sleeping uh, because uh, there's a task to be done. As uh, the Buddha said, one should uh, develop as if the, your hair was on fire. And it's amazing sometimes, no matter how sleepy you may feel, if there's an emergency like a fire, you wake up straight away. If a snake comes into your room, you wake up straight away. In one monastery, my second rains retreat in Thailand, that uh, again, we used to get up at three o'clock. I used to try and get up a little bit earlier. Uh, but getting up at uh, sort of half past two uh, in a, the rainy season where it's very humid, the morning meditation was always a very sleepy time for me. Except one morning as I got up and I put my anxa, my vest, under vest on, I noticed it's a curly shape just on my, um, my chest. And uh, straight away I knew it was a centipede. And I put a centipede on at the same time. And the centipedes, when they bite, are very painful. And uh, it's amazing how quickly I woke up. Uh, fortunately, I took the anxa off and the centipede was clinging to the, the anxa, not me. So it didn't bite. But that was one of the best meditations I had all rains retreat that morning because my mind was completely awake. And it showed that, you know, you can overcome sleepiness and you don't need uh, often to have so much sleep. So. Uh, if one is practicing sense restraint, one is not giving the mind so much work to do. So it should not need so much rest. 
So perhaps that's why after sense restraint and the Satisampajanya, the course of form of Satisampajanya, that uh, you can develop wakefulness and not be heedless in wasting time. As I've uh, said here, uh, Venal Dhammawuto, before to people, that there comes a time and it comes very quickly where you end up being abbot of a monastery. And the time when you, you are second or third or fourth monk should be valued, let alone if you're more junior than that. So you know, now's the time, you know, when you have the opportunity to practice, to practice and not waste the time in sleep. Is that the sort of thing you wanted to hear, or is there something more specific? Oh, you're asking that uh, that uh, there is uh, one understanding that the arahat uh, is 100% mindfulness, 24-hour mindfulness throughout the day. Um, we've, I remember talking with some other monks about that. That's a matter of discussion. Some people say yes, some people say no, the arahat actually goes to sleep. Uh, there's one uh, monk who uh, many people think is an arahat who snores. <laughs> So he's gone to sleep. He might be mindful of snoring, I don't know. Anyway, um, and is the uh, Jagariya of this stage uh, equivalent to that uh, degree of wakefulness? And um, certainly at this stage I would say no, that uh, one can uh, have uh, a sleep and still be able to uh, practice uh, this degree of mindfulness. Uh, it is helpful though that before one goes to sleep to try and be mindful as one goes to sleep and uh, to resolve to be mindful as one wakes up. And uh, I mean the Buddha did actually say that if one has a sleep during the day, one should not sleep the sort of length of time, this is in the hot season, that if one has uh, washed one's hair, that when one wakes up it's not quite dry yet. Of course, uh, that standard doesn't work in the cold and wet season, because it might be wet all day. But uh, in the wet season, it means that one can sleep just for a short period of time. That's if one sleeps during the day. So that's how I understand the Jagarya. And again, in order to develop uh, the mind and to overcome the hindrances, one has to balance the mind and sometimes give it some sleep. There is uh, a problem if people do not sleep enough, and I've seen this and know it for myself, that sometimes through um, giving up too much sleep and uh, pushing oneself too hard, one just gets uh, very much in the power of Tina Mida, very much in the, the power of uh, sleepiness and dullness of mind. And uh, I've seen this in myself and I've seen this in other monks, especially as you know, you spent a, a time at Wat Nana Chat in Thailand, 
in the monasteries where, uh, where they used to stay up uh, all night on the, uh, the Upasada days and the, the weeks in between, that uh, very often that monks, by giving up that amount of sleep, will develop too strong a tinamida, uh, a sloth and torpor, and their progress would not be very, uh, very good. However, sometimes that's a good thing to do, so you have to really find that one out for yourself. Ajahn Chah used to always recommend that four hours as an average to sleep at night. And if one is doing a lot of meditation, that shouldn't be too hard. If you're doing a lot of work, then sometimes that is hard to do. But this is a time when there's few people doing work. So, I can put an end now to the talk. <laughs>